Scuba Obsessed is the weekly podcast. We talk about all things scuba diving from cool new gear to places a dive and scuba to news. Scuba Obsessed episode 443 is recorded live April 2nd, 2020. Welcome back to Scuba Obsessed. I'm Darren Jilson coming to you from the southwest side of the great state of Michigan, where we are enjoying our social distancing. Joining me this week, we have Kevin Ailes. How are you doing today, Kevin? Hey, I'm doing most excellent, Darren. Thanks for having me on. And how are you this evening? I am doing as good as can be expected, better than many and not as good as some. Yeah, we're, we're all doing better than quite a few, but... Uh... Hey, you know, uh, we're here to talk about scuba diving. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So ho- hopefully th- some of that is, is going on. I know I have not been among them figuring out a way to get wet, but I'm seeing more and more people talk about it and, uh, hopefully we'll be able to see some of that happening. I'd uh, like to thank everybody who's shown up in the chat room, have a uh, good chat room of other people who are also social distancing. We have uh, Dave from the east side of the state. We have uh, Derek and Eric and Karen and Terry. So thank you all for coming and listening to us live. And we'd love to thank everybody who's downloading and listening online. Certainly appreciated. So let's go ahead and jump right on in the news. First article we have up is uh, Rourke Media has issued a COVID-19 statement. Uh, and they say the normal things that everybody says when they talk about COVID-19. They said, we've been working over the past few days to try and keep the magazine going. However, with issues in the supply chain making delivery logistics impossible, our key distribution points, namely dive centers, suppliers, being forcibly closed, we've had to make a tough decision to halt publication of the magazine until subsequent lockdowns and regulations are relaxed. The last magazine, which is due out uh, 11th through 12th of April, is now distributed in May, when hopefully they'll be experiencing more relaxed rules about essential travel and social distancing. Issue 22 of Scuba Diver Australia and New Zealand is in stores now. We expect the next issue to be out the 1st of June. Scuba diving destination scheduled for June 1st will be delayed to the 1st of July. If you have subscribed to the magazine, you'll still receive your full allotment of Paid for copies are just slightly delayed. Digital copies are available uh, below for each edition. Uh, And we'll have links in the show notes. Uh, They'd like to say the team is still very much here and definitely back with our magazine as soon as we can. We have full part-time point staff are focusing on making sure there are no uh, paid no matter where the county resides. So they're talking about paying their staff. Uh, And... Working in that particular industry that does publish magazines, we have seen a uh, reduction in some printing, especially anybody that uh, uh, targets a particular market. For example, one of our customers uh, prints a magazine that's aimed at uh, college bookstores. Well, considering that all that most of colleges have closed down and done distance learning, 
nobody's going to the bookstore, so they don't feel like they have an audience to print to. So we're starting to see that uh, impact some of ours. Uh, luckily for uh, the particular industry I'm in, we're, we're considered, uh, what, what's the term they're, they're using now? Socially required? Uh, uh, essential services. Uh, essential. Schools. Yes. Yeah. And, and I have to thank the post office because they're the ones who gave us the primary designation. And then also because we do printing for FEMA and we also do printing for the medical industry that uh, we're able to keep going. And yeah, so hopefully kinda, all these people, go ahead. It's kind of surprising, you know, uh, an awful lot of uh, industries are actually uh, able to, to put on that uh, essential services badge. It's really kind of amazing to see how many folks are carrying that now. I went by a, a lawnmower repair shop. They're essential services. Because yeah. apparently uh, landscaping uh, fell under essential services by the governor's order. And, well, you your landscaping, your lawnmower breaks down, you got to get it fixed someplace. So lawnmower service centers are essential services too. So, Yeah. Well, I, I think part of that came down, uh, at least here in Michigan, is so incredibly local news was that they determined that certain activities just because of how they're performed are going to be outside. So there's no reason to really shut them down because they weren't uh, increasing the likelihood to a significant extent. You know, they're, they're trying to limit the impact as much as they could. So uh, a lot of your outside trades uh, were allowed to continue, but then you're right. It's uh, if you support one of those trades and you by definition become essential. So you could have 50 people in a sweatshop uh, fixing lawnmowers uh, and then you would be essential. But I, a lot of the businesses that are essential are still closing down. I just read something today, you know, a lot of the restaurants who were trying to make it were saying that the decrease in business was enough that they were just burning through cash that they could save for when things got better. So they were shutting down because they were looking at it and people weren't, you know, the, the restaurant itself required uh more than just one services such as alcohol sales and even though they were allowed to do uh to sell alcohol for a carry out it wasn't enough to offset uh the loss in revenue and the uh the cash that they were burning so we're starting to see some some local businesses that are allowed to operate uh not operate uh, and then a Independence man returns from Honduras, and this is in the uh, Missouri, Kansas area. Uh, an independence man has returned home after a lengthy stay in Honduras that was prolonged by the coronavirus. Rob Cambin arrived in Kansas City International Airport late Saturday and is an airport that I fly to many times a year. I don't know how that's international. Uh, but the night after being in isolation on the island of uh, Utila, where they were able to get scuba diving instruction training, Camblin uh, documented his trip home with pictures that became that began with medical screening to ensure passengers were healthy enough to fly to the island of Roatan and to meet with United Airlines flight to Houston. That day, Camblin said there were two flights, and he was on the second flight in Roatan. We were kept safeguarded from folks in Roatan and they were provided shelter and given access to water and toilet facilities. The Hondurans were very patient understanding during our stay there. He said 50 people on Utila secured flights to Rotan on Saturday morning. Chamblin said that he booked a flight with Troy Baden Jr., who owns the air charter surface in Utila. Uh, 
upon arriving in Roatan, Chamberlain boarded the United flight to Houston. The United flight I was on was not completely full. I say two-thirds or so. On the flight, we were allowed to change seats to help with social distancing and nice touch for United. The flight was very smooth and uneventful. Upon arriving in Houston, Chamberlain said he went through customs and transferred baggage as normal. I was very surprised by the lack of personal protection used by the Houston staff and the ICE staff. Of course, the airport was virtually empty. I was able to get food and drink before my flight to Kansas City. Chamberlain said he also sent photos of a nearly empty flight from Houston to Kansas City with only seven passengers on board. Once I arrived in Kansas City, I was met by my son-in-law, and we went home. Overall, uneventful trip, but so worth it to be coming home. So I, I was seeing that, that there's a lot of people who are trying to uh, take advantage of the situation to get some, some nice trips. And they were having a, a challenge getting to their final destination. And some even made it to the final destination just to be uh, told they had the quarantine for longer than their trip was planned. So it's always better to be home. And then uh, this this one, the, the photo alone was enough to uh, cover this one. In Bali, uh, in the coronavirus lockdown, a tourist uses scuba gear to protect himself from infection. Security guards wander the street with guns and beaches are deserted. Uh, startling pictures of an Indonesian island, abandoned streets, bars and restaurants and beaches where usually hundreds of tourists would gather. Some visitors are taken to extreme approach of personal protective equipment. As the island runs critically low on surgical gloves and masks, an enterprising young man arrived at immigration for visa extension, dressed in scuba gear to protect himself from the deadly virus. A confused bystander put a picture on the, of the diver on social media and captioned it, just when you think you've seen it all, shot from immigration in Bali today. Uh, and you really want to take a look at this photo. So I, well, I'd say that was like a 80 cubic foot cylinder. He's, he's wearing his full BC uh, mask and breathing through the regulator. This is something that a lot of us have been joking about too, is, you know, a scuba kit does work as a respirator. <laughs> I mean, uh, although all you're doing is giving yourself that rarefied air. I mean, uh, the mask would be sufficient. I think. Yeah, that's what I thought. Um, <laughs> Plus, you can talk through a regulator, but it's you. Not yeah, always not, clear. Not, not really, you know. I mean, it's it's pretty challenging. Um, it's like talking through a kazoo. Yeah, I was kind of doing the, the math on it because yeah, I, I dive a rebreather, which is good for four hours. Thing is, it, it's kind of a shame to go through all that zorb and stuff just to sit there and talk you know, four hours. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. Well, if you're going to do that, you just got to breathe on it longer. Yeah. I don't think I want to go through all that grief just because, <laughs> you know, on the, on the surface, you know, an 80, you know, experienced diver should be able to get about like three hours out of that 80. So. Yeah. Yeah. As long as you're not hyperventilating, you should be fine. Yeah. <laughs> and Karen's posting more of this similar stuff here, but why are they wearing their fins in the market? That doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah, same idea, Karen. <laughs> well, m my guess is if they're wearing the fins, that's just they're they're doing it to show off. It's like, hey, let's see if we can get some uh, social media attention here. <laughs> yeah. yeah, social distancing. Yeah, you know, if you got the six foot fins, maybe. 
Oh yeah, you're talking kind of like the, the uh the, the uh, free diver fins. Yeah. Yeah. You wear that. <laughs> Scuba Terry tells us go big or go home. Oh yeah. <laughs> Derek is bonus points for fins. You got it. You got it, boss. <laughs> yeah, they said uh, when was it time to release three baby sea turtles into the Atlantic Ocean marine biologists from the Florida Atlantic University and Boca Raton? had to get creative. They teamed up with the Coast Guard because of restrictions related to the coronavirus pandemic. Collaborating with the Coast Guard, three female baby green sea turtles were released in the Atlantic on March 27th. The Coast Guard had to do it because closed beaches and scuba boats are not permitted to travel. Green sea turtles are different than loggerhead turtles because they are swimmers and more like burrow into the sorghum which is floating brown algae out the high sea. Green sea turtles are rarely observed in the open ocean, and very little is known about them once they enter the sea as hatchlings, when they appear as large juveniles or adults in near shores. To keep tabs on, the turtle scientists outfitted them with small solar-powered satellite transmitters and laser beams. Uh, No, they didn't. Uh, they already received information on the whereabouts of a six-month-old sea turtles, which were traveling to the Gulf Stream on the edge of the continental shelf. Data from satellite transmitters will help scientists from FAU and the University of Central Florida to preserve the sea turtle habitats, as well as the impact of climate change and warming temperatures on sea turtles. Huh. So that is uh, down in Boca Raton that they're, uh, yeah. That, that's something we'll talk about a little bit later, but they're not, they're not letting uh, divers or anybody in around there. I'm sure they got their reasons. Don't imagine they have the greatest in the way of medical facilities down there. It says, uh, uh, when desperation breeds creativity, how U S hospitals are approaching personal protective equipment shortage. And we covered this quite a bit last week, but, uh, uh, this is this one. I think. Try to remember why I put this in. Uh, I think they were talking about some of the. Uh, I don't know. Maybe this is something else. I don't. I don't see quite the scuba connection in this article. Uh, talking about they're reusing some face masks and res, reg, uh, respirators. I, I keep wanting to say regulators. We use uh, reuse face masks all the time. Yeah, and then maybe it was something in Detroit, uh, nothing dive-related. You know, you get so uh, following all this conversation on the virus, and sometimes it's hard to look away. Hey, I'm just pacing what you give me there, Darren. Yep, no problem. And then uh, this one, uh, the reason I put this one in, because a Canadian doctor's brilliant evil genius hack transforms a ventilator into nine. And this is uh, kind of a follow-up to last week because we had talked about, you know, how many you could get in, uh, and some were doing four. But uh, he had done nine. says, uh, one of the biggest obstacles in fighting the COVID-19 is just every country's a lack of ventilators. Patients with severe cases suffer from inflammation and build up a fluid in the lungs. Um, uh, Ontario is expecting that they will run out of ventilators very soon. What our modeling is showing, if we cannot keep these interventions in place, we're going to run out of capacity really, really quickly, like in the next two weeks. Uh, The province is working on ways to come up with more 
but it still might not be enough. So we've produced, procured 300 more ventilators to add to the 210 we currently have in surplus, the Ontario Health Minister said. Can you work on procuring additional ventilators? If hospitals run short, uh, they may be forced to make uh, decisions they don't want to have to. Uh, uh, Dr. Uh, Alan uh, Guther, an anesthesiologist at the Perth and Smith Falls District Hospital in Ontario, rigged one of the ventilators so he could hook it up to nine people. The hack was hailed by fellow physicians as uh, who called him an evil genius. According to the CBC, the rigged ventilator only works with patients that have similar lung capacities. Multiple hoses are attached to the machine so that it is running several times its normal power. At one point, we may not have any other options. The option could be as well. We let people die or we give them a chance. He came up with the idea after seeing a 2006 video on YouTube. He says the idea has been tried once before after the mass shootings in Las Vegas in 2017. The hack was so impressive that it even caught the attention of Elon Musk, who tweeted, interesting threat. Engineers in Italy earned some similar attention this week by hacking scuba gear and turning it into a ventilator mask. Italy is the second hardest hit country. Um, and they go on. So, And even in the photo, they show uh, what Italy was doing. I think we covered that one last week. But nine. Yeah, Karen pointed out they need the same pressure settings, otherwise somebody is going to get uh, barotrauma. So, uh, and and I think they even said that in the articles that you you have to really match people up. So, nine is like if every because it, it seems like you'd have to be similar lung capacity, similar stages of the uh, the virus, because uh, all your settings on the machine would would pretty much have to be the same because everybody's breathing off it. And then, no, why is this article not showing to me? About the main shipwreck? That's the next yeah, one I, I have there. That one. Let's see if I can get it to come back up. Sometimes Chrome will do that. They're, they, they're mad at me for not letting uh, me continuously serve me ads a thousand times. So you got Chrome mad at you. You got Verizon mad at you. They're all mad at me. I'm just that important that they just can't, uh, they can't handle my not having my full attention. Main shipwreck identified as a colonial era cargo vessel. About two years ago, a nor'easter struck York Beach, Maine, revealing a skeleton of a century old shipwreck beneath the sand. It was far from the first time the mysterious ruin had surfaced, only to disappear again. In fact, the wreck first appeared in the state sandy shores in. 1958, and after decades of anonymity, maritime archaeologist Stefan, uh, what does that say, Kleisson, has found evidence linking the vessel to a colonial-era cargo ship called the Defiance. He presented his findings to the board of selectmen earlier this month, reports Aaron Hayes, for the, well, that's a terrible font color, Seacoast Online. To identify the wreck, he sent pieces of the hull to the Cornell University Tree Ring Laboratory, which I know uh, is a dendrochronology. Learned that from Oak Island, uh, which analyzes the samples to determine their age and visited the Peabody Essex Museum in Salem to do some good old fashioned historical research, namely looking for nearly 50 year old 
uh, of notary records kept by one Daniel Moulton. The Cornell Lab analysis found the trees used to be used to build a ship were felled in 1753, though 18th century sailors often abandoned old leaky ships on the sandbars. Researchers suspect the York Beach ship met its demise under different circumstances. We think it probably driven ashore during a storm and it was pushed so far under the beach that it couldn't be pulled back into the water. The wreck measures about 50 feet long, but the Defiance itself, a narrow cargo boat known as a pinky, would have stood closer to 60 feet long in its heyday. Klesson identified the vessel after searching notary records that mentioned the shipwreck matching Defiance age, construction style, and location. Initially, archaeologists thought the ship was called the Industry, it was a possible match, but later realized it had sunk in a different location than the wreck. The Defiance, meanwhile, fits every description. Uh, the cargo ship bound for Portland, Casco Bay, left Salem in 1769, caught in a storm, crashed into the rocks uh, along Cape Nettick Cove. There was a crew of four, and they were carrying flour, pork, and other supplies. When the ship hits a rock, they attempted to save it, build the ship. The crew survived, but they couldn't save it. The Defiance ruins are normally buried under five to six feet of sand in March 2008, but the strong storms occasionally push the sand out of the way, revealing the bottom of the Colonial Era Hall. Reports of the wreck first appeared in newspapers in 1958, resurfaced again in 1978, 2007, and 2013. The ship isn't reburied by natural shift in the weather locals cover it and sand is a protective measure quite well, a lot of work uh the pinky styled ship is a common what's that oh i'm kind of surprised i thought you paused but go, go ahead and continue i'll bring up a point later on this year yeah um the pinky style ship was common design in the mid 1700s it's only the bottom of the defiance hall remaining proved and proved the challenging to identify it's difficult because a ship like that, uh, 18 wheelers of today, basically it's loaded up with all kinds of goods, whatever is being traded, going from port to port to port. There were hundreds, if not thousands of boats doing this. When the ship was uncovered in 2018, New York Beach Police Department shared photographs of the scene on Facebook. Then tourists swarmed the scene, sometimes taking bits of the ship's rib-like woodwork home with them. Smith says it's been tricky and expensive to remove to try and move the ship remains from its current location. Truth, the sandy resting place actually represents one of the best options for preservation. Uh, Moving forward, Klesson hopes to have netting the sandbags around the wreck to protect it. He tells the newspaper that they're searching for additional artifacts and photographs that can be uh, show out more of this ship's story. I'm not trying to be the archaeological police, but people have been interested in the site for decades. I love to see photos, learn anything about it, and tell the story of the site. Well, I'm kind of curious about this, that uh, the ship, the, the, the remains they have measures about 50 feet long, but the Defiance itself, a narrow cargo boat known as a pinky, would have stood closer to 60 feet in its heyday. I'm surprised they're considering this to be the Defiance. Because when it comes to uh, shipwreck identification, um, it's kind of accepted that a ship may, the bones you find may measure larger than the ship originally was. Because over time, the boards will tend to splay out. You know, the uh, 
sides of the boat falls away, it makes it wider than it was originally. The bow and stern tend to lay flat over time after the wreck. So often the uh, the wreck, when it's found, actually may measure you know a few feet longer than what the record says it was, just because of natural you know decomposition of the shipwreck. But in this case, they're claiming that the uh, ship that it was was actually longer than what they're finding here. Now, unless they're believing that there is a lot of ship missing to fill in the gaps, um, that doesn't go with the traditional convention of shipwreck identification. So, I don't know, they said that there are quite a few different possibilities in that area. Plus, this is actually a very small shipwreck, only being uh, 50 feet long. I mean, this could easily have been a, a personal pleasure craft. Uh, 50 feet is really not really something that you consider a uh, a cargo vessel. This is this doesn't have enough room inside to carry. You know, they listed off a had several different cargos in it when it was lost. I I'm skeptical on this one. Very skeptical that they have it properly named. Yeah, I mean, it, it's hard to tell. Like you said, maybe they thought that they're missing some of it. Looking in the f- photos that we're able to see, uh, the stern isn't going to be that much longer, even if you when you add in what would be above the waterline. The bow, you could, but it would depend. It'd be more decoration. Not being familiar with this type of boat, I don't know if maybe it had... Uh, a longer extension on the bow, maybe for approaching a dock or, uh, you know, if this is a type of vessel that maybe it did, uh, it unloaded on a beach. Well, but it certainly wouldn't be a, a you know, extension of 10 feet. You know, when you're talking about a boat that's this size, the difference between, uh, you know, 50 feet and 60 feet, that's about, uh, about 12% of the boat's overall length. That's, I, I think they've misidentified. You know, this probably is an area where you had a number of wrecks. As it was, they had to kind of sort through several different wrecks to say what it was. I'm thinking they probably put the wrong name on this one. It's my good. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, the the time period, you know, we're talking 17, you know, early 17 to mid to late 1700s. You know, this 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 obviously isn't a vessel that you'd have that be doing major ports. So, well, I don't know, just like a pickup truck of its day. Additionally, I mean, you're talking about a shipwreck that's that old in an area which is this shallow. And also, you, you look at the surroundings there. I mean, the entire shoreline, we're not talking like a, a gentle sand. This entire shoreline is all, looks like, uh, you know, cobblestone size, you know, rocks. I mean, that would be really, really tough on a shipwreck. You know, when you're talking about this is Maine, so that is an area which, uh, you know, that's going to freeze and then, you know, be twisted by the ice. You're going to have ice flows ripping through there. Well, not not flows, but, uh, you know, the ice is going to get pushed up on the beach and things are going to move around. Um, I would be completely, utterly shocked to see a boat that old, that shallow, in that environment, having that much still intact. I mean, 
yeah, okay, hey, I'm just a local shipwreck guy. I'm, I'm not one to really dispute the experts here, but this just doesn't make a lot of, I mean, I would really, really question the identification here. Well, this this next one I think is going to be a little bit easier to identify. Other than I still can't pronounce a name, G E N E I N N O. Is it Jenny and Gen, uh, too many N's? Geneno. Gen Geneno. Geneno. Yeah, yeah. Of course, you know it's one of those things. Once you say it wrong, you can't say it right. Uh, they they announced a lighter duty, less expensive S two underwater scooter. It was two years ago uh, that they had uh, released or tried an underwater scooter that made by a Chinese startup. Was it Jenny Nono? Jenino? Eno? Jen Eno? I don't know. <laughs> Company has now released a cheaper, more <laughs> no portable model known as the S2. Uh, the Trident, now called the S1, is designed to pull swimmers, snorkelers, and scuba divers along underwater, utilizing two electric-powered propellers that deliver uh, 12 kilograms or 26 pounds of thrust. It can descend to a maximum depth of 50 meters or 164 feet, uh, taking its users to their choice of two set speeds, 3.6 or 7 kilometers an hour or 2.2 or 4.3 miles per hour. One one and a half hour charge of its lithium battery should be good uh, for an hour of use. By contrast, the S2's two 350 watt motors put out 10 kilograms or 22 pounds of thrust. It bottoms out at 30 meters or 98 feet, offers speeds of 3.2 or 4.6 kilometers an hour or two or 2.7 miles per hour. Poorly runs for 45 minutes per charge. It's also smaller, 800 grams. 1.8 pounds lighter with a total weight of 2.7 kilograms or 5.9 pounds. And at $399 is much less expensive than the $689 S1. It's, well, it's it looks like it's a nice, convenient size. Yeah, it's a very compact model. And it almost looks as though it possibly it, it might fold down from there, base design. I mean, it's a. Yeah, I got a video showing it's an interesting somebody using toy, it. But what what's that that brand they carry down to Wolf's? Because the ones they have at Wolf's are quite a bit cheaper than that. Even I don't know what they could compare in thrust, but I don't know. I've I've kind of stayed away from the scooters. It's uh, I don't have a lot of spots that I could use it, or at well, least I don't as, think I do. Yamaha is what Karen's saying. I'm I'm surprised. I mean, as much as you're into robotics and gadgets that. I bet you're staying away from them because I think you you would enjoy them too much. <laughs> Get hooked on them. Oh, probably. I, I'd have it all rigged up, but yeah. Well, you know, you th- you think about it. You can take that down to the Havana. You know, I mean, you, you can you can see the whole wreck on one dive. Then. Yeah. I I know that uh, you know what's it? Uh, Jake and Mary Beth were using a few of those for uh, dive the river for a while, and those are just awesome for grubbing because uh, you just angle the fan down into uh, oh, you know, yeah. your target area, and it just, it just blows that silt right out of there, and current blows it away. Of course, you only do this when you have a current, because if you do it when there's no current, then you're just going to wreck the visibility. <laughs> of course, it yeah. gave me something to blame wrecking the visibility on then. You know, I kind of like that idea, too. 
So yeah, so I did, it's like I an automated Mac. Yeah, I, I didn't do a do a silt bomb. That that was a scooter, not me. Don't blame it on me. Come on. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, they'd be. I think they'd be fun. And at that price range, that get that's uh, something that you can play around with. Yeah, seven hundred dollars. You know, this is four hundred versus seven hundred. You know, the the thing is, is a lot of times you start off with a cheaper one, you use it just enough to figure out that you really want it, and you're going to end up buying the other one anyway. That's the way it goes. Always buy the best one you, the best one you can afford. Is that it for Scuba in the News? That, that is it. All right, that does it. So we we went through that one pretty quick. Yeah, that was what seven articles and moved through it pretty good. Yeah, yeah, just chop, chop, chop. Oh, so has anyone been diving? I know it hasn't been the uh, the best weather for it. We're kind of improving now, at least in our area. Where, you know, we finally had a day up in the sixties today. So, I have not few- heard of anybody doing any diving. Uh, people in the chat room are talking about just doing work-related dives. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, Dave Mabry was show- sharing us some pictures about doing a recovery dive. That was pretty cool. Yeah, that's the uh, the the scary thing of losing your tow vehicle in the water. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Make sure you got an e-brake and you put it in park. Yeah. Looks like our buddy Dave Lowry's been diving quite a bit. He managed to get out there to uh, Lake 16. He's posted more pictures of the platform and things out there. It's out there fairly regularly. Yeah, it'd be nice to see what kind of plans that can get worked up to get that fixed. You know, in that, what I would call a shared resource, I don't know if anybody claims ownership of the platform but it'd be nice for the divers in the area to kind of responsibly come together to uh, repair and get that put back in place so it could become useful again well looking at it a lot of what is out there at lake 16 is hasn't really been maintained for a while and i think the community is going to kind of come together on this Maybe you know, establish some work work days out there. And I don't know if that platform could even be fixed. You know, if you look at the well, pictures, I'm... it's it's come apart in several different places. I mean, I would think that you could possibly pull off all the wood and you know replace all the decking and reuse the, the framework and probably some of the barrels, probably the chains, a lot mm-hmm. of the different hardware and all that might be reusable. But uh, it's you know. The way that decking is buckling, uh, you're looking at a, a complete rebuild on that platform right now. Yeah. My, my thought on that would be not to really reuse. You know, uh, I, w- I would be nice for somebody to do a survey and get some accurate details. Um, I don't know how it's attached to the bottom. I don't know if it's concrete or if it's augered in. I, I have a feeling it may be augered, but you know, yeah, it's one of those things you don't really pay a lot of I attention think- I think it, it it is augered in with um, it's got you know chains and augers auger bits holding the thing in. Yeah. He, um, he he look at helix anchors basically holding that thing down. Yeah. Yeah, but uh, it it wouldn't be terribly expensive to go and replace it. Probably the most expensive part would be the uh, if you didn't have access to the steel for the welding, 
Uh, I mean, you can get barrels fairly inexpensive. I think those were steel barrels. I'm trying to remember. There's, I think there, there might even been a mix. It might have been some steel. Yeah, what I, I can recall with the uh, blue, throw in there. the blue plastic barrels, what I can recall on it there. But I'm, I'm betting that fr- that that steel frame could all be reused. It's just you know that that wood decking has definitely had it. So yeah, I I would go with uh, some of that that plastic decking they got now. You know, you wouldn't have to worry about it rotting away. Yeah, but then you're talking a little bit more money, and you know, I mean, as many people die about there. I mean, it wouldn't and to enjoy that resource. So you think it wouldn't be a big deal? Everybody kicks in fifty bucks, and everyone put in fifty bucks in an afternoon. We can get that thing back back up and running, you know, no problem. But uh, it's a matter of you know coordinating it. And I don't know. I mean, these kind of things in the lakes, I don't know they're not one hundred percent legal. So right, you know that. They've been popping up out there for decades in different lakes and places and all that, but we'd have a lot more of a eye upon us now. And there's been some concern that, you know, some things such as the, uh, oh, the um, the fish tank, the the, the underwater uh, communication booth. That one may actually have been intentionally damaged. Uh, you know, there actually were holes in the bottom of it, and looks like somebody actually you know, maybe a fisherman, someone definitely, uh, well, it, it looks like someone, someone took that out deliberately. Yeah. Well, if it's deep enough. Would a fisherman be able to get to it? Well, you know, or do you, should, I guess you could snorkel down on a, on a good day. You can see it from the surface on a good day. Um, they could probably hook it with their anchor if they're curious. I don't know. Okay. You know, it's it's also possible they might have actually hooked it with their anchor accidentally, and then got upset because they you know they lost an anchor on it there. I don't know. I mean, it's not an area we yeah. go looking for anchors, but there probably are a few of them down there. So, yeah. But wow. Yeah, I'm I'm, I'm sure it could. The, the challenge would be, like you said, since it's you know some of that stuff's probably not supposed to be there. Uh, and then you don't want to be claimed as the one who put it down or the owner of it because then there's a liability aspect of it that could come along with it. Well, uh, if you have a it's bunch been of people, there, if you had a bunch of people put it down there, though, it's going to be kind of hard to, you know, nail down. I mean, you might go after the organizer. I don't know who would. I don't know if there's anyone around here who ha- who knows enough divers to organize something like that. You know, uh, I don't know who that could be. You know. Yeah. The the story I had heard when I started diving out there was that there was a dive shop uh, that had since wasn't around anymore. And they're the ones who had put the platform in that they were using it as their to do their open water training. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think even uh, uh, used to be, uh, oh, I can't remember the name of it, uh, but a shop in Niles, Michigan. Uh, for a while had gone up there. They had, they would use Diamond Lake, uh, another lake, and then also Lake 16, but they have, they had since transitioned to going down to Gilboa, uh, just because they're trying to make it more of a big deal. They said that when they took people to, to, uh, larger venues to do the open water dives, they thought that people stayed diving longer than if they just did a local spot. So, 
Yeah, I don't know that you know, Guild Ball was quite popular for the open waters. I I know they they give a lot of perks to the instructors down there as well. So, and you know, gotta face it, it's kind of hard to beat how much there is to see at Guild Ball. You know, when you're at Lake 16, um, it gets cold so quickly. You know, you get like beyond 60 feet, and you know, most everything that we like to see there is deeper than 60 feet. So, once you get deeper than that. Uh, if you're not in a dry suit, you're not going to hang around very long. Yeah. And, and that, that lake does seem to be, uh, I remember before I went to it, everybody had kind of psyched me to expect that was going to be a, a terrible dive, but I was always told how cold and dark it was. And yeah, it does get cold once you get down through that, uh, that, that thermocline there. And, uh, it was a old mica mine. So when the boats get running around on that lake uh they stir up that that mica silt and it's hey suspended for quite a bit which is why it tends to be dark it's uh mm-hmm. it takes the light doesn't move through it too well uh so hopefully people get out and do some diving now uh, i understand that you had talked to some people today about diving well you know i've been watching online and been wanting to get up, been wanting to get out myself, but you know we see quite a few folks who are actually getting out diving. You know, I've seen I've seen uh, you know uh, Dave Lowry, one of our local very active divers. He's been out quite a bit. I've seen uh, a few different folks from the uh, subaquatic sports group have gotten out. Like, uh, Scott Saggy was out at Lake 16. You know, there's been been a few getting out, and of course we're in the uh, the COVID-19 lockdown right now. And, you know, we all want to get out and go diving, but then there's the question of it, is it legal right now? And I apologize to those of you who are, you know, not in the state of Michigan, because I'm talking about some very Michigan specific details here. And some of this may apply in your area. It all depends upon what the regulations are for, uh, you know, your lockdowns and isolation going on during the uh, COVID-19 epidemic here. But, um, so I decided to get, give make a call to the DNR. I uh, started with the local plain old DNR. And what I wanted to know was, you know, because under Governor Gretchen Whitmer's executive order, uh, getting out for recreation and walks is permissible. And I hadn't actually seen the language. I wasn't certain which part of the language the authorities in the area here were relying upon for how this was going to work. And I wanted to actually hear it from the Department of Natural Resources as to their opinion of the legality of us going out scuba diving. Because going out, you know, Jumping in your car, driving up to Lake 16, going for a scuba dive is not quite the same as just going for a stroll around the neighborhood, going for a walk, which is how many people have interpreted the uh, the um, the right for recreation to be. But we're also seeing in the media, uh, if you look at also look at the the Department of Natural Resources website, you know they keep telling us that the uh, the parks are open for the most part. Most part, uh, please come out and enjoy 
the lake, the uh, the lakes, the recreation. They are discouraging folks from traveling far to uh, come see our lakes. Uh, there's really not a definition of traveling far. Uh, sometimes the word uh, distant travel is used, but there really is not a measurement, a number of miles, a time, a distance, as far as how much you can travel to see, you know, to uh, come enjoy the recreation. Now, I do have some language here. I'm going to apologize to you folks for getting technical here. But uh, according to Governor Whitmer's executive order, the uh, stay home, stay safe executive order, long distance travel is discouraged unless it's for a purpose considered critical under the governor's stay home, stay safe executive order. Travel into the state from outside Michigan for recreational purposes is not recommended at this time. This type of non-essential travel could unintentionally increase the spread of COVID-19. Now, I spoke with three different folks at the Department of Natural Resources today. Uh, I ended up getting uh, passed up as far as chatting with uh, Edward Golder. He is the uh, DNR's chief uh, public, public relations officer. And we had a, probably a good 20-minute conversation as to uh, the DNR's interpretation of Governor Whitmer's executive order you know, relating to recreation. And they're kind of putting scuba divers and fishermen in the same boat. Now, of course, that boat has to be big enough to uh, you know, permit the social distancing guidelines. Uh, we are all here in Michigan. Uh, required to maintain a distance of six feet from person to person. This is to minimize the chance of any virus being transmitted from one person to another through uh, coughing, uh, exhaling, sneezing, uh, different possibilities of you know uh, transmission from person to person. Uh, so what I got from Edward Golder is that scuba diving is indeed recreation. It is considered exercise, and it is permissible under the stay home, stay safe executive order. But there are some restrictions. We have to make certain that we are uh, using, we are adhering to the uh, social distancing guidelines. That means even as scuba divers, we have to stay six feet apart from each other. They're not saying that, you know, underwater, six feet, you haven't got to worry about it. They're saying six feet apart no matter where you're at. Um, you know, if you're in the water, if you're suiting up, uh, you're discouraged from carpooling at this time. Um, now, if you are with a person who is in your immediate household, the six-foot rule does not apply. You know, this, this is a situation where you are sharing enough personal space that uh, if you've got it, they've got it already, and you can't, you know, require, expect people to maintain social distancing who are sharing a household. So if you're going out, you know, scuba diving with your fiancé or, you know, someone, you know, hint, hint, that's what I do. But uh, if you are uh, out there with someone in your immediate household, then the social distancing does not apply. But for everyone else, 
if you want to scuba dive, you can do it. But you have to think about how that affects how you dive, uh, how you gear up. You know, many of us have wetsuits, dry suits, which require a zip along the back. So who's going to do that zip along the back and still maintain that six-foot social distancing? Now, the DNR is watching gatherings. Uh, we've had a number of cases where the DNR, Department of Natural Resources, and our local police departments as well have been breaking up you know, gatherings of people. But uh, in any event, the DNR is not going to interfere with us scuba diving as long as we are adhering to the social distancing mandates. I mean, we only have a, a bit of a loophole here because it is considered uh, recreation and exercise. So let's not screw it up. You know, let's uh, be grateful that we have this opportunity for you know, to enjoy our recreation. There are ways for us to enjoy our hobby legally and move forward with this as long as we're smart about it. So stay safe, stay healthy, go get wet. Thank you for researching that information for us and making all those contacts. I know it takes a little bit of effort to go and well, I, get I was people and get some answers. I was very pleased with dealing with the DNR. You know, they actually, the first two folks that I spoke with, uh, you know, initially I, I called the Plainwell DNR here and I had to leave messages with them to call me back. And then I would, the, the gal there, we spoke for a bit and then she referred me to her supervisor in um, Lansing and we spoke for a bit. And they were not that familiar with scuba diving, and they couldn't see a problem with it. Let's go on scuba diving. And I had to point out, though, that, you know, there's often a little bit of travel involved, and there are issues as far as getting your equipment serviced and things that go along with scuba diving. And that's not going to fall under the DNR as far as getting your equipment serviced. You know, you're going to have a hard time explaining to, uh, you know, an officer if you're stopped, you know, why you are three hours from home and, you know, yeah, your back seat's full of scuba gear because you want to go dive the straits. But uh, they're not going to accept your, uh, you know, going out for recreation three hours from home. That could say that's just not going to fly. You shouldn't have a problem. And I'm not an attorney, you know, uh, if you don't feel comfortable with this, don't do it because I'm not going to pay your bail money. Wear your ticket, but uh, you know, I got to, you know, there's no definition right now as to what the, you know, how far you can travel. Just don't rock the boat. Don't push your luck. You know, let's be glad we have this opportunity to enjoy this hobby. Because I can tell you, if this was a state which did not was not so proud of their natural resources, was did not have such an interest in 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 tourism. This would not even be an option here. So enjoy it, but let's not screw it up. So, well, you okay. have anything you want to want to plug before we get out of here? Well, uh, as always, I want to encourage our folks to uh, support your local dive center. Uh, 
You all like to get those deals online, but those deals online aren't going to fill your scuba tanks. Also support your local libraries. You know, often we get opportunities to vote in millages and, uh, you know, different ways we can support them. Always do your best because there's a tremendous amount of information in those libraries on shipwrecks, on reefs, on fish, on whatever you like to find underwater, which is in the written form that is not being digitized. And when those libraries are lost, those that information will be lost as well. So please support your local libraries. And hopefully everybody is staying healthy and enjoying the program. We appreciate your support. If you want to follow us, we're on Scuba Obsessed, www.scubaobsessed.com or on facebook.com forward slash Scuba Obsessed on Twitter at Scuba Obsessed. And usually somewhere along one of those three channels, we'll, we'll put something else out. So are you ready for that time of the show? Time for the joke. Bring it on. Let's do it. I, yep. Yep. And those that were in the chat room got to determine the direction of the joke. So, of course, that just gives us uh, somebody to blame. So here we go. A teacher is explaining biology to her third grade students. She says, human beings are the only creatures that stutter. A little girl raised her hand saying, I once had a kitty cat that stuttered. The teacher, knowing how precious some of these stories could become, asked her girl to describe the incident. Well, she began, I was in the backyard with my kitty, and the Rottweiler that lives next door got a running start, and before we knew it, he jumped over the fence onto our yard. The teacher exclaimed, well, that must have been scary. The little girl said, oh, it was. My kitty raised back and went, and before she could say shit, the Rottweiler ate her. Okay. So those of you who own hot Rottweilers and pit bulls, please send your hate mail to the show at... (laughs) Yep. (laughs) So until next time, go out there and get wet. And as Mac would say, stay safe. Have a good time doing it. Yeah, in the chat room, they're saying maybe they should have said the other one. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, everyone, for stopping in. Bad. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah well, just, maybe this will be a, cha- a, a chat room bonus. Do we give the, the chat room the other one and they could have uh, retroactively said it, which it should have been? Well, actually, uh, you're still recording. I see Craig is still online, so you get a double whammy for the yeah. recording, too, it sounds like. Yeah, I, I could I could edit it in. So there was a uh, yeah. Th- this this had to have been I, I'm going to say before the coronavirus, but a uh, hospital had a consulting uh, dietitian that was giving a lecture uh, to several community nurses from the Southampton area of Hampshire. The rubbish we put through our stomachs and uh, consume should have killed most of us sitting here years ago. 
Red meat is terrible. Fizzy drinks attack your stomach lining. Chinese food is loaded with MSG. Vegetables can be disastrous because of fertilizer and pesticides, and none of us realizes the long-term damage that can be done by rotten bacteria in our drinking water. However, there is one food that's incredibly dangerous, and we all have or will eat it at some time in our lives. Now, anyone here able to tell me what that is? and that it causes the most grief and suffering after years of eating it. A 65-year-old nurse sitting in the front row stood up and said, wedding cake. <laughs> yeah, I'll go with that. As I'm planning a marriage here, I'm planning to get married here in six yeah. weeks. Oh, yeah. That's good. Mm-hmm. Casey, you're oh, yeah. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Yeah, Dave, Dave had that one. <laughs> Thank you all for tolerating us. Yeah. Uh, well, the nice thing with the chat was they can't like throw rotten fruit at us either. So no, virtually they could, I guess. Probably could. Here comes Craig. Wow, everything is slow. He was talking at us. Recording. Oh, I never heard him. He didn't like to talk to me. Watch the watch the potty mouth because he's recording. Especially you, Karen. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Mac won't be here tonight. I'm not sure he just said he wouldn't be able to make it. So are you ready, Kevin? If I said no, would it make any difference? Sure, I'd I'd, I'd wait for five seconds and start anyway. <laughs> yeah, I'm getting well, some pretty good lag time here. Okay, is my audio good on your end there? I'm getting some real bad lag time on this end. Uh, the audio's coming through well. It, it they seem to do a, a pretty decent job of patching it together, right. so it doesn't sound too broken up. Uh, the thing will just what will probably end up happening is that we'll keep walking over each other because of the, the lag, but, mm-hmm. uh, I can fix quite a bit of that and post 